0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: The position of BLM director is surely among the most important positions uh, for sportsmen for a variety of reasons. And having someone who has walked the walk, someone who has worn out some boot leather in the field and... Uh, You know, the fair chase of game and someone who spent some time on a river with a rod in their hand throughout their life is an invaluable asset. And Tracy Stone Manning brings those assets to the table.
2: Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle. Today we have a special edition podcast running on our not normal time because we have a special topic. We're going to give our listeners a look into the Bureau of Land Management, or the BLM as it's known in the West. And for folks who don't know, the BLM manages nearly 250 million surface acres in the United States, and that's one in every 10 acres of the United States. They also manage the federal onshore mineral estate and special designation areas like national monuments and national conservation areas at times. And... In the West, they manage huge swaths of landscapes that are all well-known and well-traveled you know, by thousands of hunters and anglers each year, and they're very literally home to some of the best hunting and fishing on the planet. And so we know some folks don't know how the BLM operates, so we thought it'd be a good thing to bring on some experts with a wide range of experiences to talk about what they do. So the folks on this podcast, including myself, also have many years of experience working with the person tracy stone manning who has been nominated by the biden administration to lead the blm so today we're going to cover how the blm works why it matters to hunters and anglers and other public lands users our experiences working with tracy stone manning and what we hope this agency might accomplish during this administration so with that i'm going to welcome our guests so first we have kathy hadley kathy is a 30 plus year resident of montana a devout and lifelong hunter and angler, rancher and conservationist. She has served as president of both the National Wildlife Federation and the Montana Wildlife Federation Board of Directors. Kathy recently retired from her role as the executive director at the National Center for Appropriate Technology. And she's one of my favorite people. She's also an Artemis co-founder. And so I'm really happy to have her today. How's it going today, Kathy?
3: Great, thanks so much, Aaron.
2: You're welcome. I'm I'm glad to have you. Next, we're going to jump over to Jess Peterson. Jess is also a Montana resident over near Billings. And he's an expert on agricultural and grazing issues. And for the past 20 years or so, he's worked on agriculture, natural resource, and development policies across the West for organizations like the U.S. Cattlemen's Association and the Society for Range Management. And he currently works with the policy firm Western Skies Strategies and serves on the Billings, Montana Chamber of Commerce. How's it going today, Jess?
4: Hey, it's great to be here.
2: Thanks for coming. Uh, and last but not least, we have Gaspar Pericone. Gaspar is a fourth-generation, lifelong Coloradan, and a dedicated sportsman. Gaspar and I have worked together on many hunting and angling policy issues over the past dozen years or so here in Colorado, and I know him as one of the most respected sporting policy voices in Colorado and beyond, really. He served as a wildlife commissioner here in Colorado and as the legislative program director for the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. And he currently works on a wide range of natural resource and policy issues as a partner at the firm, Freestone Strategies. What's going on, Gaspar?
1: Thanks for having me on, Aaron. I appreciate it.
2: (laughs) You're welcome. And dang, that was, uh, that took a bit. But uh, I wanted our listeners to to understand, <laughs> you know, the depth of experience we have here. And uh, it's quite a crew and we're lucky to have you all. So thanks for being here. And, you know, first, we usually start my podcast with what we've all been doing outside, but that might take a while in this case. So we're just going to start with a good hunting story. And Kathy has graciously volunteered uh, to do that. And she's hunted extensively on BLM lands. So I'm going to ask her maybe about a cool memory on BLM lands hunting and just, you know, what that type of landscape we're talking about, you know, give us, set the scene for us, Kathy.
3: All right, Aaron. Um, This is a hunting story when I first started big game hunting and uh, my first or second year hunting antelope. And uh, my husband and I have two boys at the time and, part of our recreation, or most of our recreation, was hunting, fishing, and camping. And so we decided to go out to eastern Montana, well, central Montana, around Two Dot, Montana, Harlowton, Montana, and hunt BLM land for an antelope whose I had drawn a tag for. So away we went, um, made camp. And the kids were pretty young. They were about four and eight years old, but they were good hikers. And we hiked for, it seemed like, hours before we finally saw some antelope off in the distance. And the land was really cut up. It had a lot of gullies and hills, lots of sagebrush. And um, we decided this little herd of antelope would be something that we would sneak up on. Well, it's not very easy to sneak up an antelope with two little kids and two adults. So as we got within about 500 yards, we decided my husband would keep the boys and I would go on my own. And my husband had been my teacher for learning how to hunt for big game. And he gave me a bunch of rules to follow at the time. And one of the rules he taught me was if you're hunting, a deer or an elk or an antelope and they're coming towards you don't shoot don't ever shoot until they get close and stop and then shoot well i did my stalk and got behind a a big dirt uh, gully with just my lying on the ground prone which i knew was the stablest that i could do and what i desperately needed because I had butterflies in my stomach and I had never killed an antelope before. And I was incredibly excited and my rifle was shaking and I was shaking. And I saw this antelope and it was coming right towards me. And he came and he came and then he came some more. And I just stayed on the ground as shaking. But I knew the antelope couldn't see me shaking, but I sure felt like I was going to come apart. And finally, that antelope which I know now was less than a hundred yards away from me, disappeared. He was gone. And what I didn't know in front of me was a great big drop off in the ground. And there was a place where that antelope could go and go completely by me for a quarter of a mile. So I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and no antelope, no antelope at all. And finally, I got up on my knees, and I crawled over to look down, and there was no antelope. And then I looked off into the distance, and there they were. Well, I came back to my husband and the boys, and they all looked at me like, what the hell did you just do? Sorry. Um, And they wondered why I hadn't shot. And I looked at my husband very defensively and I said, well, you told me, dear, never to shoot an animal if it's coming towards you. You just keep letting them come because you'll make a better shot. And he said, for God's sakes, Kathy, he was less than 50 yards away from you and you didn't shoot. So I learned a really good lesson that day about um, common sense and understanding the geography and the landscape that you're in. And um I went on to continue to hunt um, that uh, area with my family, and ultimately we did score, but it was tense for a little while with my husband, who felt that I really hadn't learned my lesson. So maybe that's a goofy hunting story, but honestly, that lesson of (laughs) paying attention to the critter that you're stalking and what the local circumstances are has stuck with me for 30 years. So there you have it.
2: Well thanks, Kathy. There's a lot of uh, you know, what some call the speed goats out there on the BLM land. So that's a good segue to uh to talking about what we're gonna talk about today. And I know you've you've spent, you know, thousands of days in the field at this point and I've seen some of your awesome photos all around the place, fishing and hunting and everything. So we know that uh you have some some more good stories and maybe even some that will will help us talk some more about the BLM here. Um Let's jump in a little bit to how the BLM operates. I think, you know, some people don't know, especially folks who maybe live out East, they're not familiar with what the BLM is supposed to do. And I'm going to start with Gaspar here, but I want Kathy and Jess to jump in as they want. Um, So the BLM's mission is to sustain the health, diversity, and productivity of public lands for the use and enjoyment of present and future generations. And they also have what is known as a multiple-use mandate. So Gaspar, let's start there. Give folks a sense of what the heck that means. And, you know, particularly from a hunting and angling standpoint, if you would.
1: Yeah, you bet. I mean, look, if you're a hunter and angler, our BLM lands are just simply invaluable, right? I, they manage 43 million acres of habitat, uh, of elk habitat. I think like 130 some odd acres of meal deer habitat. Got 130,000 acres of fishable rivers and streams. And, you know, it, it's a haven. Um, but I think what really makes the BLM special, particularly to the the hunting and angling industry, is um, that unless specified as closed, those lands are open, which means that anybody with a hunting or fishing license valid in their state effectively has their own private land to venture out to in, in the you know pursuit of big game or, or trout fishing. Um, it, it's just... It, it's what makes uh, American hunting uh, distinct from every other country in the world is our shared ownership of, of public lands. And so, you know, the, the BLM um, has a long history of of management. And at times, I think it has been certainly more advantageous for the hunting community than others. But, uh, you know, it was officially formed in 1946, I believe. And, um, you articulated their mission clearly, Aaron. I, I think what uh, layered on top of that really makes the BLM interesting is this concept of, of multiple use. Um, and it is, it, it's as it sounds. Uh, for purpose of policy development around public lands management, uh, it means simply public lands have a, a variety of resources and use, uses. Um, those resources, of course, include things like forge and timber, oil and gas, minerals, um, and then the other side of the coin, of course, is the uses. Uh, we think of things like grazing, recreation, mining, hunting and fishing as the uses. And the, the mandate effectively uh, requires that all of these um, resources and uses be considered and balanced with one another, meaning that one particular use uh, or, or resource isn't prioritized um, unsubstantially uh, over the others. Um, Now, on face value, that sounds pretty straightforward, of course. But I I think, you know, at day's end, like all federal agencies, they are responsible to the people and where you stand very much depends on where you sit in all scenarios. And so the, the role of the BLM and its director is to, at least in my opinion, to find an equitable balance between all of those uses and prioritize those resources not just for this generation but in a manner that will ensure that the same resources and uses will be around for the next generation as well Um, so that's the overarching mandate of course as is always the case with federal law there are a host of um, regulations uh, court cases um, subsequent laws that layer into what in you know, ultimately becomes the, the guiding um, parameters of the development of BLM policy. But um, it's a big job that they have. It's incredibly important to a wide variety of people, and it's no easy task, um, which is why I think that the position needs to be filled by somebody uh, capable and qualified.
2: Yeah, that's a good answer. There's a lot going on in BLM lands. Um, that That multiple-use mandate is is very tricky. Sometimes those things conflict with one another. And how do you do that? You know, how do you work that out? What do you think the top issues that, you know, sportsmen and women should be paying attention to with respect to the BLM um, are right now, you know, especially considering a new administration?
1: Yeah, well, uh, again, you know, I I think there's a myriad answers to this question. And, um, you know, I'm going to come at this through the lens of the, the hook and bullet community. But from my perspective, I think there are three things that the, the sportsmen and sportswomen community has an eye on under the new administration. Um, restoration, access, and partnerships uh, come to mind as probably the top three. Uh, yeah, in restoration, I think that's you know, putting people to work on our public lands um, to attach or uh, sure. problems like cheatgrass, for example, right? multiple benefit. They're good for farmers, good for ranchers, good for sportsmen, good for wildlife. So that kind of collective restoration effort, um, you know, I think is very much top of mind. Um, What always rises to the top in our community, of course, is access. Um, And that, you know, may be specific to the sportsman community, but I think more broadly, perhaps even to the outdoor recreation community as well. And, uh, you know, I think what we need to focus on in that arena is working to make sure that, LWCF dollars find their way to the ground um, in a manner that does provide access, particularly in opening up um, those lands that are owned by the federal government, but are completely surrounded by private land and are effectively landlocked. Uh, the land and water conservation funds, which you know of course just recently were permanently reauthorized and fully funded, um, do have a condition that makes them available to increasing access for hunting and angling opportunity and the next step of that equation is to uh, ensure that they do find their way to the ground, and in a manner that increases access for all. And then, third, and I, I think this um, is a standard that you know should span every administration, uh, and that is good partnerships. Understanding that um, you know work requires partnership, not just on management prescriptions, but also um, uh, you know in a cooperative manner developing the resource management plans. Uh, landowners and, and sportsmen and and others um, need to play a role in this. And um, I have always been a, a fan of the bottom-up approach. Um, you know, we have witnessed previous administrations who issue directives to the BLM in a very top-down fashion and in a manner that priori- prioritizes one particular use over others. And um, I've been of the opinion that uh, effective resource management and, and uh, effective... Um, public land use uh, warrants a, a, at least a degree of bottom up approach that reflects the interest and the values and the voices of not only the, the local land management uh, personnel, but also the, the voices of that community and the interests of that community. So I anticipate that this new administration will uh, offer a keen eye to all three of those issues. And, um, you know, they are very much a priority for many of us in the, the sportsman community.
2: Thanks, Gaspar. That's a good, quick synopsis. And uh, anything you, you want to add, Kathy or Jess? I mean, I think I think that was a good one, but feel free to jump in there.
4: Well, this is yes, Jess. I'll, I'll just uh, jump in. And I think Gaspar covered it uh, extremely well. And it's just multi-use comes out time and time again. And anytime you have multi-use it means you have various stakeholders and not choosing one we we we're all we're all susceptible to our biases right and so not falling into that rut and and looking at it from a holistic perspective across the board energy grazing multi-use and all the elements that the gas bars outlined and, and kathy and others are so so familiar and all your listeners i mean you all know and i think the thing that's about blm is it holds a special place in all of our hearts in so many ways and and so being able to have somebody step in that role that is is sat in those conversations, interacting in those conversations with folks with direct stakeholders. And what I really am impressed and excited about what is we're talking about here with this potential uh, this nomination coming forward is uh, someone that's uh, that, that literally wants to see the agency, the outcome, the multi use. Be a win-win all around, and and I, I don't want to say that anyone else has ever came into this position with a uh, with uh, with a direct bias of, of 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 some you know element of of the BLM they'd like to see done. This this individual that we're we're talking about, Tracy Stone Manning there's this, sees the big picture, has been a part of it for a better part of her career. And then we'll come back to a community. Uh, we all know when, when she's done with this position, she'll come right back to a community and we know she'll be right back out on those lands and enjoying them and working with the folks. So again, it's not easy to, you know, the management plans that you set forth within the BLM, uh, you're, you're updating those, uh, you have to have stakeholder input, you have a lot of folks out on the land. And so when you make those updates, when you, when you, when you work through those regulatory uh, programs, it's difficult. And so having someone that knows that from day one and says, how do we bring this multi-use all together? In addition to, you know, you have some of the finest folks working at the Bureau of Land of Management and having someone that from day one can communicate with them, uh, make it very clear as to what what the priorities and how their movement. Uh, these agencies keep in mind, they, they have a leadership position, but they're all out in the field. And so how you communicate with those throughout the field offices. And, and each one of them has a unique uh, unique set of opportunities, uh, problems, challenges, and having someone says, okay, where, where how, how are things working and how we get that moving? There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to make these lands that we all enjoy and hold in our hearts uh, to make them function. And for us, even the economics, uh, as it works from a grazing side, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in these field offices that links right back to leadership being committed to both taking that input and applying it and then coordinating the personnel. And that's why I'm very excited to be having the conversation we are here.
2: You almost jumped the gun on me. I mean, I was going to ask you directly a little bit later kind of what uh, <laughs> what you had to say about that, but uh, <laughs> we'll get back to that. <laughs> Let's go to the next one because we'll just segue over to you, Jess, because you know, obviously we have all these uses, all these folks, the diverging viewpoints you know, to manage on BLM lands. And that's, that's a tough task. I mean, we just outlined some of it, you know, anybody would have, have uh, some challenges there, but let's think about that from the perspective of one of the users, right? You're intimately familiar with what that means for, for grazing permittees, for instance, on public lands and BLM lands. Give us a sense of how that multiple use mandate kind of looks for a permittee and and what kind of considerations
4: there has to be. Well, first off, it's, it's an incredible partnership. That permittee, uh, has the opportunity to to graze on public lands, and I can tell you on behalf of the uh, of livestock producers that, that graze, uh, we 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 are so appreciative of that opportunity. But it also comes with responsibility for that permittee, uh, waters, fences, uh, management of the livestock, management of any of the the animals, the predators around there, uh, and of course the ups and downs we're seeing right now. This cattle market, we're, uh, it's it's not easy, it's not easy out there, and so economics. Uh, plays a big role in it. Weather we all know uh, what the West looks like. Uh, certain parts, uh, Nevada, Utah, Montana—I mean, you name it—Wyoming. Uh, we're we're uh, we're in drought, severe drought conditions in Nevada and Utah, and we're we're right on the brink uh, along these other states. So again, that all plays into uh, how you're going to be turning out your cattle and how that communication with 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 BLM uh, plays out as to what 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 number of. Uh, uh, you know how, what's what's your AUNs looking like, and so again, you you have an incredible partnership. These are public lands, but these permittees, these grazers, there's so much responsibility, so much stewardship, so what, so much management uh, that goes into it. And again, having leadership that communicate both from headquarters, the field offices, the staff and personnel. You want that relationship, whether it's someone that's in the outdoor community to have an incredible relationship with BLM staff and personnel, same with the ranching and grazing community. And I can tell you, and I'll say this directly to anyone, 90% of our conflict or more comes from some breakdown in communication. Communication is key with BLM. You've got to have someone in there that can communicate with all the stakeholders. And when ranchers nine times out of 10 will say, yeah, we're, we're just having a," Communication issue. We're, we're we're walking through this. We're we're trying to get the same page. And when you can connect on that communication, this agency can really coordinate quite well. Thanks, Jess. That gives
2: us a good sense. Maybe maybe a little bit about so from any of you, what does that you know look like when you know either conflicts happen or or some of the overlap with other users out there? What, what does the BLM do about that? Give us give us some examples of how that might work. Anyone want to jump in on that one?
4: <laughs> I don't want to. I don't. Don't turn the token cowboy and start talking about how to deal with conflict because that's what we're all about. <laughs> you know, I think understanding understanding that stewardship and management can be rewarded. Understanding having that relationship with your BLM grazing special grazing staff, uh, saying you know here here's here's our plan, and understanding you know BLM has to follow certain guidance, but but sitting down and, and talking about uh, how we can complement grazing can complement uh, 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 these 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 just wildfires that are burning out of control. With regards to invasives that are, that are in the wrong places, wrong time, and how can we do prescribed uh, grazing? Maybe you know prescribed burns and the like there too. But but being able to address uh, your, your your wildfire issues, uh, being able to complement the the species, the habitat. Uh, we've got some pretty important uh, critters and species uh, out there on these lands. How can livestock uh, complement uh, those habitat? And I think we've came a long ways. And the reason is, is folks just got in the room and said, we can we can do this. We all care about these working lands and, and, and putting them together and not trying to, you know, not putting one over the other, prioritizing whether it's cattle get priority over the species or species prioritizing, we can both uh, cohabitate on these working lands if we if we can communicate. And I think that's a lot of time where the conflict comes in where it looks like someone's prioritizing and Gaspar touched on this a little bit. If it looks like you're prioritizing one of the BLM priorities over the other, you start getting folks uncomfortable. So really pl- uh, playing in on that multi-use, being very clear about here's what you're grazing, here's what your allotment is going to be, uh, here's the monitoring we're seeing. Here's the here's here's the scientific trends, the the, the the stubble height, and all those types of pieces. If you're very clear on that, it comes together. And I know it sounds kind of warm and fuzzy when we're talking about it on a podcast, but it means getting out and doing stakeholder meetings, uh, having your folks uh, collaborate, just like we're having here this evening uh, or on, on the podcast, and, and working that out. So I, it, it, but you have to have a hands-on. And I don't want to talk about what's gone on previously, but if you lose track of that communication to your people in the countryside and your staff, it, it can be a
1: struggle. I think Jess brings up a good point. You know, I mean, when you think back to the original concept of federal land designation in the days of Theodore Roosevelt, I, you know, they were probably not of the mindset that in the year 2021, where I think we are kind of facing a new paradigm of public land management, that there would in fact be a supply and demand problem to some degree. And, I'll be the first to say I, I think there's room for everybody on the forest. I think they, you know, were set up and intended uh, in that manner. But um, we are at a unique point in history where uh, these particular uses are overlapping with one another more than um, they historically have, and you know, the inevitable outcome of that is some degree of concern and conflict amongst the uses. And so, I think you know it, what will be critical moving forward is to have leadership that takes stock of the fact that you know outdoor recreation in america is exploding we have um, you know a long and positive history of public land grazing of course you know oil and gas development is no stranger to public land as well and all of these particular uses of the resources are starting to overlap in a manner that re- that requires i think new thinking about what resource management and travel management plans look like and you know in the development of those plans we can no longer think about them as isolated and siloed activities but how they can um, connect with one another in a way that reduces conflict and those are difficult discussions to have um i think the starting point has got to be that the promotion of one doesn't come at the expense of another Um, if we all start from that perspective i think it lends itself to not only community partnership in developing these plans but also a mutual understanding on the back end of why the policy was developed in the manner that it was. And um, yeah, like I said, we we have witnessed uh, over the long history of the BLM moments um, or periods of time, rather, where there were uh, prioritized interests. And um, I I think, you know, to be an effective BLM manager, you, you have to take stock of of all of these multiple use standards, and um, the, the difficulty in doing that effectively is, uh, you know, to Jess's point, having the discussions and putting together plans and policies that um, reflect the, the the multiple use standard of VLM, and uh, you know, results and and products that are developed with those parties in the room. Sure. Well, you
2: know, another interesting part of this. And and we just talked about the difficulty of the job already is that the BLM has not had a, a true director uh, since since 2017. The Senate confirms the BLM director. Um, we haven't had a Senate confirmed BLM director. There was kind of an acting director, perhaps in some maybe not so uh, legal ways during during the past handful of years. But, you know, it's an agency that has more than 10,000 employees manages, you know, 250 million acres, things like oil gas, grazing, timber management. You know, what think let's think about some of the impacts of not having a director for the last 4 years. And Gaspar, I'll start with you again. Um just tell us what is that what's the result been of that?
1: Well, I think anybody who's participated in any sort of BLM activity recognizes that things fall through the cracks when there isn't leadership at the helm. Um, that's not a knock on the tremendous staff and agency personnel that make up the division, but ultimately the buck has got to stop somewhere. And having a vacancy um, in a post like the BLM has caused all sorts of concerns. I mean, first and foremost, um, the agency is able to evolve and adapt with the times and the needs. You know, so many of these activities require permits and, you know, consequently that requires, Somebody to approve those permits, and you know the delay and everything from you know grazing to outfitting um, has, has been really problematic. But I, I think more prominently, and you know again speaking through the lens of the the hook and bullet community here, is we are w- witnessing uh, you know in certain areas some degradation of the of the resource, and um, you know it's an unfortunate reality that um, a lot of the plans that are in place for the BLM areas um, are. Greatly outdated, um, and again, not a knock on the staff, but I think it's time to revisit um, many of these resource management plans and update them to accommodate and reflect the interests and desires of the users of those particular parcels um, in a 21st century standard. Um, the, the uses and the practices have evolved, the desires and interests of uh, the constituents have evolved, and um, you know you you've got to have the personnel in place to keep the agency up to pace with the the needs and the demands of their customers. And it, it may be a bit too simplistic to think of the BLM as a you know customer service led agency, but I think you know from the public's perspective, that's the expectation. And um right or wrong, uh, that's something that the you know the BLM leadership needs to contend with and Uh, you know, to your point, Aaron, not having somebody there to answer those questions um, in a definitive manner and to offer direction to staff to undertake these needed changes results in, you know, um, things falling further and further behind.
2: Yeah, I think that's a natural result, I guess. Um, We've seen a little bit of an exodus. We had a lot of career staffers that uh, chose to to leave instead of uh, relocate out to Grand Junction. Uh, We've seen some things fall by the wayside and it's, it's it's too bad. And, and, you know, I remember, and you, you guys all probably remember when I was first getting into conservation policy and so on, you know, in the nineties and, and even learning about it prior to that working as like a career forest service person or a BLM service person, that was kind of a big deal. Uh, You know, like if you've been there for 20 years or something, you were well-respected. There wasn't, you know, people in the community, people stayed in communities for longer. There wasn't as much movement, you know, people around different offices. And so I think there's just kind of a general need to both, you know, revamp the morale and the structure and activities that that happen in the BLM.
3: When I think about the last four years without having a director, in charge and things falling through the cracks that absolutely has happened and i think you know one of the tools the blm uses to to do uh, all of their work on the landscape is resource management plans and those plans are really important and lots of people spend time preparing the blm staff preparing the plans and it talks about how landscapes are going to be managed for all the competing interests over time. And um, during the last four years, we had a number of new resource management plans come out of the agency, but because the agency didn't have a director, it ended up in litigation. So, So if you're a livestock producer with a grazing permit or an outfitter, all of a sudden, you don't know what the rules are anymore because resource management plans are no longer valid. And I think that's uh, a huge issue and is one of the reasons that we need to get a director in there that's qualified and capable and experienced to help bring back some type of normal relationship that BLM has with all the different users on the landscape.
4: Yeah, I just, this is Jess. I think Kathy hit the nail on the head. I mean, you, you put a lot of time, energy, and effort to putting these plans together, you know, comments, sessions, interactions, and, and not being able to advance. As I go, a lot of the conflict comes back from communication. And if you don't clear that, uh, present that and then get your field offices. And I think you touched upon something. I, I am always, and of course, I'm uh, to say I'm biased is, is an understatement because I get to work with some of the finest uh, folks around, and that are th- th- those are the Forest Service, uh, BLM uh, staff and personnel. They're incredible individuals, and they are so committed. And so to have leadership that that uh, values their contributions, values what what they know. Like you just referenced, I think you made a great point. How do we how do we keep this working class, working group of professionals so so knowledgeable? I mean, the science, the research, e- even just I mean, you're talking about BLM. I think. You look about the diversity of 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 habitat, of lands, of regions. Uh, Yes, there's similarity, but there are stark contrasts in in so many ways. And so, having that institutional knowledge and being able to utilize that is 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 just incredible. So, I I guess uh, one of the things that I want to get clear is again, just what Kathy just noted, but then also just getting excited and enthused about how we retain the talent we have. And get out there and start recruiting. I mean, we have such an opportunity to recruit from our land grant universities, our, our various uh, range programs and whatnot. But we also have the opportunity to start looking at uh, urban areas and, and bringing some of those folks in. And how do we train and get you know that diversity of management and personnel, I think, strengthens BLM across the board. So again, I, I'm just very bullish on the future. If we have that leadership that can work in the fashion we're talking about here. Thanks, Jess. I think yeah,
2: those are good points, and like we've said a a bunch here, it's it's such a tough job. You need to have the ducks in a row, right? I mean, there's so much going on. So I think that's a that's a good segue to what we're going to talk about next as well. And that's you know we have a nominee now, and and she's going to go before the Senate, and her name's Tracy Stone Manning. We've all known Tracy for for years now. We've seen her work sometimes in some pretty tough circumstances. You know, she has an extensive background working with folks and leading natural resource issues, and is really well-respected across party lines and, and different natural resource user groups. But I want to give our listeners some examples of exactly what that looks like. And Kathy, I want to start with you, because you've known Tracy probably longer than any of us, and in the in the mid early mid-2000s, she was the executive director of the Clark Fork Coalition, which is a a nonprofit in Western Montana, whose main charge at the time was cleaning up the Superfund site uh, down below the the big mine in Butte and Anaconda, you know, as a result of that legacy in the upper Clark Fork river. And she led some really amazing work there. And I'm just hoping maybe you can give us a look into that issue and how Tracy specifically led that process.
3: Sure. Um, The Clark Fork river uh, is I live on the Clark Fork River. And just to sort of set the story up for your listeners, um, we're located in Southwest Montana. And there were two copper mining and smelting towns called Butte and Anaconda, located about 30 miles upstream from the headwaters of the Clark Fork River. And the Clark Fork River starts and then travels about 120 miles Northwest to Missoula, Montana. And at Missoula, there there was a dam called the Milltown Dam. And in 1908, there was a massive flood in this area, which washed toxic mine tailings throughout the Upper River riparian areas downstream to the Milltown Dam and the reservoir. And the reservoir captured about 6 to 7 million cubic yards of these sediments that were all toxic. the communities close to the Milltown Dam, Bonner and Milltown, the people who lived in the communities when the Superfund investigation started, they found out that their wells, their drinking domestic wells, were contaminated with arsenic and other metal uh, mines, uh, toxic stuff. And that created a huge problem. So EPA is in charge of Superfund across the country. and the first thing they came up with was the idea of well maybe we can dredge the reservoir but the problem was all those toxic mine tailings were seeping down into the aquifer below it then the aquifer that provided the drinking water for the community well enter the clark fork coalition which is a science-based uh non located in montana and it's all about and does only one thing and that's to preserve protect and maintain the clark fork river Tracy was the executive director. It was a small organization at the time. And she and her staff there came up with what I call the big idea. And their big idea was we don't want to dredge this reservoir. What what about the idea of making a free flowing river? Think about the economic impacts of that to the small communities and Missoula and um, I think at first everybody thought that was a crazy idea, that it was just too big, that it wasn't politically feasible. And um, the idea, where would you take six, seven million cubic yards of toxic sediments? Well, Tracy Tracy is a kind of person who knows how to create collaborations and partnerships. And she really worked very hard over the course of three or four years. She had to work with the local county commission in Missoula. She had to work with the communities of Bonner and Milltown. She had to work with the utility company who owned the dam, and the dam, by the way, generated power for the utility company. She had to bring in the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes because they have tribal rights on the river. Then she had to work with all the federal agencies, the EPA, DEQ, or the state agencies too. Uh, the National Park Service. And she had, most importantly, she had to get the entire community behind her because this was such a big lift and it would cost millions and millions of dollars. And Tracy's real strategic and she's very respectful of people coming from different places. She's a great listener and she somehow knows how to listen and digest what people are telling her and come up with ideas that meets the needs of two or three or four or five parties at the same time. But I really think she brought the stakeholders to the table. She had lots of different um, ideas on how to get the community behind her. And one of them was to create a bumper sticker called Remove the Dam and Restore the River. And after two or three or four years around Missoula, almost any parking lot, you'd see those bumper stickers, because not only was the stickers good, people sort of got it. But the Clockwork Coalition figured out if they gave gave them away for free, more people would use them and put them on their cars. And it was a brilliant idea to take, you know, nonprofits don't have a lot of money, but by God, they produce a lot of those damn bumper (laughs) stickers, and uh, it helped their cause. Ultimately, we had a Republican governor at the time, and they had to get the governor's okay for this. The good news is the governor was from Butte, and Butte, of course, was a Superfund site too, and the governor understood Superfund complexities and the historic damage that had been created all across this basin, and they knew they won the war and that the dam would be removed when they got Montana's Republican governor to give, and it was, um, oh my goodness, I just forgot her name. Anyway, she gave her blessing to this idea of removing the dam. So starting in about 2005 through 2008, dam removal happened. She convinced the communities of Anaconda and Opportunity to accept the 6 million cubic yards of toxic tailings coming from missoula back upstream to where most of the toxic pollution is is being um put in repositories and all in all it was a fantastic win for the communities for um conservation and uh, for the river and she did a a magnificent job and it all depended upon communication as jess said and uh, developing relationships with all the stakeholders involved she was wonderful
2: yeah kathy that's a good example of kind of you know probably similar to some of the types of challenges someone at the blm would face right working with so many different people agencies challenges you know logistics um you know and i and i would be remiss to say if i didn't say you know i was there the day the first bucket got dug out of that uh, of that Earthen dam that was created after the the, the dam was taken down and, and watched the black the the Blackfoot and the Clark Fork merged together for the first time in a hundred years, and as an angler, I was really fired up about that because it allows yeah. fish to move freely in a way they hadn't for a hundred years. It's going to improve that fishery. It's now a I think it's a state park, and it's a it's a recreational gem. Tons of fishing access restored yes. it's lots yeah. of willows and braided and mm-hmm. it's, it's a cool thing now as opposed to kind of a mar on the landscape that was always looming there uh, needing to be cleaned up so that's a that's a great one and and you know i think that's a testament to the kind of leadership we need
3: it's it's a beautiful place now and it is a state park and uh, it's a recreational hot spot for people around missoula they they involve the community in the rebuilding and restoration of that site and there's a rapids there now that people actually crazy as this sounds surf on that they created as a new recreational opportunity, but um, anyway, involving the people in the community in the restoration that's a really important part to that Tracy understood
4: well this is jess i'll just build off what kathy said just a fantastic overview of, of tracy stone manning and her work and bringing folks together i for one started in the conflict space with tracy uh, which is why it's even more notable that i'm here today as one of her loudest uh, supporters and proponents i start out at the ends of a conversation uh, as we were working on a renewable energy project in montana she was in the governor's office and true to tracy stone manning form Uh, our folks that I was assisting with may or may not have been uh, not following protocol appropriately and accordingly. (laughs) And, and again, it went back to communication and, and just Tracy's willingness to, you know, I I even, I don't want to say give us a second chance. I don't want to speak a lot about what, what all was going on in the project rights and wrongs, but these things happen in the nature of, of, of our business of public policy, but just her attitude, her willingness to, to, to come to, uh, a solution and just to be clear in communication being very reasonable and and write all the shoots i just think would wait, I, I wasn't, dis- I'm starting to really be more impressed. And so uh, she had reached out later about, could we coordinate more on on addressing these uh, sage-grouse management plans? And so I said, absolutely. So again, I started as this cowboy, all frustrated with this Tracy Stone Manning, what's her deal anyway, to sitting on a show here with a great deal of pride. And I've been very, a lot of conversations. I was on one here uh, yesterday, a very large uh, podcast podcast uh, where I was uh, you know, putting my reputation on the line, put my best boots forward, betting that Tracy Stone Manning will do will be a great uh, uh, colleague and, 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 and official uh, for, for livestock folks to communicate with. Again, she's not going priori- to prioritize what went over. She's going to prioritize anyone or any interest, but having that clear communication uh, is where she's coming from. and I couldn't be more excited. To uh cheer on and champion her efforts to hopefully move forward with a confirmation.
2: Well, what do you mean, Just You were on a larger podcast than this. You just mic dropped him.
4: <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was gonna. I was trying to figure out a nice way of saying there's no way it could be larger than this. And I was like, I was gonna get tongue twied even more. So I got busted there. I mean, it was it was a ten size, and you know, I, I apologize. <laughs> I thought we were going on mute, Aaron. You were going to hand it over to us, and and I was going to guest DJ it, and I thought we're going to go in the <laughs> wrong place real quick. So. Your audio came back. And uh again, back to you, moderator. Take us, take us home here.
2: (laughs) It's always fun with these. You know, and I think this is a good time too. I mean, you you jumped the gun a little there, Jess, too. I was gonna ask you about kind of some insights on on how ranchers perceive Tracy and, you know, her her leadership style with that group and what what really won them over? You know, I know you've worked with her on a few different things, and there's a couple of stories you've told me. But talk about like exactly what that looked
4: like well look this is this isn't going to be an easy task right uh this administration this is there's there's been priorities outlined by this by administration that, that don't align uh directly with a lot of our folks in in the uh, grazing and in energy sector that's just reality and so you're going to need that ability to look folks in the eye Uh, I think more than the virtual eye, I think we might be doing in-person meetings at some point here and uh, going back to that again. And what Tracy Stone Manning has the ability to do and what she's done in our instances is get on the phone with ranchers or in one case drive to a certain part of the country. I don't want to divulge too much information to to a set of ranchers in a grazing district and just sit down with them on their terms in their space and just start interacting. And I remember we got the call uh, right out after that meeting. They said this this individual she she came in there. She said amongst us, she asked all these questions. She wanted to learn. She wanted to learn more about it. And they were expecting again something entirely different, uh, given given her role and background and who she was affiliated with. And so again, I think it's how she she enters the room, how she engages, how she listens, and then how she presents and said, okay, this is how we're, we're going to move forward. And that's how uh, again I I. Uh, you know, again, I, I come from the, from that, from that conflict old cowboy that was like, my gosh, Tracy. And, and I thought, well, I had told her it's was $10. Like, you know, I don't know Tracy. And, you know, I still trying to give her the rundown. She didn't need the rundown from me. She went in there and won them over. So I know we have, um, you know, folks that have uh, influence with various senators, uh, senators and their staff are listening in here. And again, I think, uh, we, I can just tell you, being on the land, uh, I'm, I'm I'm dialing in from from Montana, and uh, we we do have uh, some of our lease has some BLM components within it, and and I can tell you from being out on the land, I want someone that can sit in that con- sit in the room, have that direct conversation, and and be very clear in, in what what the plans are and and what the feedback is, and that's where I think we're headed, and I'm very excited about this opportunity, and I ask everyone that's out there listening. Uh, uh make make sure that that message gets relayed uh because to say washington gets a bit, bit, bit twisted out there bit, bit spun around right there is an understatement and uh we have an opportunity to address that and and come together and make that very clear thanks
2: jess so Gaspar, we're going to swing it back to you you've worked with tracy on several issues ranging you know from balancing recreational uses on public lands to energy development issues like you know reclamation of, of- drilling sites and bonding on federal lands. Yep. And then oil and gas development near uh, someone, something near me here, the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Can you talk a little bit about those efforts and, you know, what you learned about Tracy and her style during that?
1: There's an undercurrent theme that's emerging, um, you know, between Kathy and Jess's discussion, and it's one that I'm going to echo as well. And I think that's just a testament to the quality of character that Tracy's displayed throughout her professional life, right? I mean, Look, it's worth noting that she's experienced in her own right. She comes from, you know, a very long and credentialed history of engagement and policy and and, poli- and politics, frankly. And um, I, I think it will undeniably serve her well, having the degree of expertise that I think is required to do the position um, to its greatest potential. But, you know, I, I come from the, the viewpoint of what we need now and frankly, um, what we've needed for some time is a director who can bring people together uh, from diverse backgrounds to work towards common ground. And, you know, the position of BLM director is surely among the most important positions uh, for sportsmen for a variety of reasons. And having someone who has walked the walk, someone who has worn out some boot leather in the field and uh, you know the fair chase of game, and someone who spent some time on a river with a rod in their hand throughout <laughs> their life is an invaluable asset. And Tracy Stone Manning brings those assets to the table, and I think we are all poised to um, reap the benefits from uh, you know her her lifestyle and her past workings. And um, unlike Jess, um, I, I was impressed with Tracy from the get go. Um, it may just have been a consequence of the mutual interest in our projects, but. I, I have had the opportunity to work with her on a variety of different policy issues. And, um, I think she, uh, you know, is, is very much a woman of her word and, uh, you know, to the, to the point of communication that we've been hampering on, uh, throughout this, this conversation, um, there's a lot to be said about that. And, um, but yeah, you know, A few years ago, the the BLM announced that they were um, considering leasing thousands of acres uh, in near proximity to the the Great uh, Sand Dunes National Park. Um, These are oil and gas developments, um, and uh, they were looking to circumvent previous standards of public input and environmental review in this particular case, and now look, hey, I think it's important to note that, uh, you know, I'm not anti oil and gas development on public lands. Uh, I do believe that it needs to be done right and managed appropriately and properly reclaimed. Um, however, I, I'm also of the opinion that there are a few landscapes in the nation um, that embody, you know, the, the spirit of the American West more than the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Um, you know, the park is the centerpiece of the San Luis Valley, which is in Southern Colorado. parts the Sangre de Cristo Wilderness and the Rio Grande National Forest at the valley floor. It's, you know, unbelievable um, elk and uh, deer habitat and winter range. And consequently, some of the uh, best hunting the state has to offer, Um, not to mention a whole host of other outdoor recreational activities that are utilized by a wide variety of folks. And you know what made this particular lease sale so puzzling to us was the fact that the the local BLM field office was nearing completion of a new RMP, um, which is a comprehensive land management plan for the region, and the RMP um, ha- has been in the making for the better part of a decade and included significant public input from residents and local interests. Unfortunately, um, the administration at the time opted to go forth with the lease sale under a previous RMP from 1996, which was. Fully outdated and didn't reflect any of the public input or the interests of the communities surrounding this parcel of land um, at that time, and it forced the hand of the field office to offer the lease sales in a way that circumvented all of the hard work that they had put in, all of the public input and perspective, um, local elected officials on down the line, and um, you know what I what I was impressed most with by Tracy in this effort was her ability to cultivate. Um, a variety of voices from every side of the island, from all of the diverse backgrounds that had a stake in this game. And the goal was not, of course, outright prohibition of development, but a more thoughtful approach to the one that, you know, did reflect the voices of the local community rather than just the, the corporate voices that were, um, you know, seeking a fast track permitting uh, process. So, you know, these are all of our lands. And we should all have a say in how they are managed. Um, Yes, we certainly need to be honest and uphold the underlying sentiment of the multiple use standards. Um, And this can be done, I believe, in a way that's mutually beneficial to all parties and all public land users. Um, And, you know, I, I think what she brings to the table is that understanding that Um, we can, you know, rising seas, raise all ships. Um, And I think she, you know, brings the character and the mentality to, to offer that opportunity um, in advancing each of our particular interests um, for the benefit of all, but not at the expense of, of others. So um, like Jess said, I, I'm bullish on this um, opportunity of, of her confirmation. I think she is certainly qualified and will serve the agency well and all of its users well also.
2: I think we're all bullish. I think (laughs) that's why we're here. But, you know, the the interesting part of this too, is we've all had unique and different experiences with Tracy. And I think that speaks to kind of the diversity of her experiences, the strength of her her experience and the scope of her work. Um, And I think those are the things that, you know, clearly will Will serve someone well when they're in this role, if you know if she is indeed confirmed. And you know, I'm confident Tracy would be an excellent BLM director. You know, I've seen her leadership firsthand. I've seen her pragmatic approach. She listens. She's fair. I know she really likes to find outcomes that serve the the land, the wildlife, and the people. You know that rely on them. And that's that's really what I think we're all after, right? Uh, kind of a, a public servant, really. You know, not a servant of of any one party or or any one you know special interest we want to see somebody who who thinks about all those issues and i you know i think when someone does that it'll be a a big boon to the sporting community as well because sportsmen and women have diverse points of view as well and 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 want to see things happen in certain ways and someone who gets that western sensibility and and those issues uh, is really critical and i and i hope the senate sees it that way as well um you know, I, I know we're running up against time here, and and I want I want to yeah. respect you folks' to be, time, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let each of you
4: <laughs> go, go ahead, Jess. Well, no, I did I, I didn't want to, I just I was just just thinking about it as you as you were talking about tracing that I just jumped the gun and, and jumped in there, and you know I've 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 t- taken a few of your podcasts, I'll be taking a lot more, but. <laughs> Look at look at just just the diversity of background we have here this evening, right? I mean Kathy's incredible background and the work that she's done, uh, and yet you have Gaspar and I, you know, energy grazing livestock, and we're here, just stepping right out on a limb, saying we're we're jumping right in the middle of this. We're we're both uh, bipartisan. We work with. Republicans and Democrats alike, and have constituents that 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 speak accordingly, and and so we willingly stepped up and said, "Hey, we're we're here and want to be part of it right out of the shoots." And so I think that's pretty impressive. Uh, one for National Wildlife Federation and you, Aaron, for hosting this, but also just uh, what a compliment to be in this day and age. And I don't need to tell anyone, hopefully they're not turning on the news or the, 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 the entertainment that plays on the cable channels. That's not news. But hopefully they're turning on more of these podcasts, getting informed with really what's happening out there. But look at the diversity of backgrounds. And we're all here tonight or that this podcast, and this is this is, this is is a person we can align with. And we have completely different backgrounds. And we're going to walk into completely different stakeholders. And oftentimes you get, or unfortunately, when you get into administrative posts, You get this echo chamber. It's like, oh, it's this group says this is our time or this group says this is our time. And you're seeing here. This is a collective. We represent a collective group of voices saying this is a person we want to get behind and say, lead the way and bring everyone together, communicate, collaborate for for a set of of lands that we all love and cherish. And, and even uh, it's part of our livelihood as we, as we run livestock and take advantage of multiple use. So just thanks for hosting this. Uh, compliments to the speakers, compliments to the listeners out there. And uh, let's see this thing through the finish line.
2: Well, thanks, Jess. We'll, we'll let that be your parting shot.
1: Amen, Jess. I was just gonna add to what Jess was saying. You know, there is no greater equalizer in America than our public lands, right? This concept of collective ownership is unique to this country. And, you know, I I hope that it can continue to serve as a beacon of what democracy can be when we all work together um, and, and, you know, have collective uh, respect for um, what is collectively ours. And, um, you know, I I know that is a sentiment that Tracy embodies and cares deeply about. And, um, you know, it may be a bit superficial to talk about public lands being a uniting force in this day and age of, political partisanship, but it is a thing that we can hold on to and look to um that brings us together rather than divides us.
2: You're right on that, Gaspar. I say it all the time on this podcast. So uh I agree. Kathy, we'll turn it to you for for one for one last parting shot. Anything you want to say?
3: Um I so appreciate Gaspar and Jess and what they just said because I agree with both of them. And it's been a pleasure to be in their company on a podcast. It's been great, Erin. Probably one other thing that some of your listeners may not know about Tracy is that she is an incredible outdoors woman. And uh, she has a passion for our public lands, like many of us do. And she's a hiker and a person who fishes, and she's also a hunter. And I've known her through those activities for 20 plus years. And she, she is a servant, as someone already said, and will take care of our public lands for the benefit of all people. Because Tracy believes all of us have to benefit together, not one group or over another. And that's one of the things I deeply appreciate about her. So thank you, Aaron.
2: Thank you, Kathy. And with that, we will wrap up. Um, I think we need a leader like Tracy. And uh, I hope we can, if if any senators are listening, let's hope some senators are listening and tell them to get on the Tracy bus, get her confirmed. She's going to take us great places. She gets the job. And uh, folks like this are are a testament to the kind of work she can do and, and the kind of way she can unite us. So thank you all for joining. Hopefully we see Tracy in that leadership role sometime soon, and and I look forward to seeing you all in person. Thanks for joining. We are NWF Outdoors.
0: You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But... As I've learned, no matter where
4: I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand presents Saturdays at 8:30 p.m. Eastern.
1: Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.